Court is now in session with your host, Peter Briggs. Welcome to the Lawyers and Lay People podcast, a conversation-based podcast featuring interviews with some of Georgia's top lawyers, where we, in an easy-to-understand way, answer the questions that are on the minds of you, the layperson. In this podcast, we talk to specialists in a particular field of law to hear directly from them as to what clients typically ask them and what they should be asking. I'm your host, Peter Bricks. I graduated law school in 2006 from Georgia State University here in Atlanta, and I've been practicing as a lawyer for almost 17 years. I'm a personal injury and bankruptcy attorney as well as a registered mediator. Today, we are joined by Jenny Brown. Jenny is a founding partner of Brown, Dutton, and Kreider Law Firm in Metro Atlanta. Their website is gafamilylawyers.com, and her practice is devoted exclusively to family law issues. Jenny has more than 12 years of litigation experience specializing in divorce, modifications, custody cases, and other family law-related matters. While attending law school, she was awarded a certificate specializing in family law. Jenny was nominated as a Georgia Super Lawyer in 2017, 18, 19, 20, and 21, an accolade awarded to fewer than 2.5% of lawyers in the state. Additionally, in 2018, 19, and 2020, Jenny was nominated by Georgia's Trend Legal Elite. All right. Well, welcome to the uh, podcast, Jenny. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So just tell us a little about you as far as I think you've exclusively been doing family law since you've been out of law school. How long have you been practicing? What do you like about it? Sure. So I graduated from law school in 2010, and I have been primarily focusing on family law. What I really love about family law is my parents went through, I'm, first of all, I'm from a big family, and my parents went through a terrible divorce when I was in fifth grade. And I knew far too much about the process. And I really knew going into being a lawyer that family law is what I was going to do because I have the unique ability to remove emotions from a situation. And family law is a very emotional part of the law, right? You're going, you're helping people get through the worst part of their lives. And so to be able to try to keep children out of that as much as possible and help a client to the next part, of the better part, hopefully, of their life has been huge for me. And that's really why I've stayed in it for so long. Well, um, I know anytime a lawyer is involved, the topic turns to cost. So sure. my first question is, are there circumstances where individuals actually can get by without a lawyer uh, or maybe do it collaboratively? What, what are the circumstances that maybe they can get by doing this on their own? Sure. I, th- I think those are two really d- different questions, right? So if you're focusing on can someone do a divorce without a lawyer, I would say the only time to do it completely pro se, which is just the fancy word of saying, you know, without a lawyer, is if they have no assets and no children, and, and no debts. So really a short-term marriage where there's nothing between them. But people don't see the future consequences of trying to do something themselves if they don't really understand what they're doing. And a simple example could be you might not have, not have any assets together. You might not have any debts together. But let's say during your marriage someone failed to file taxes. Then there could be this unresolved tax issue that you're not really aware of and you didn't anticipate that or put anything in your divorce about it and you have to deal with it later. So it's really important to at least have a attorney review. Even if you draft it yourself, you can always go to an attorney and say, hey, can you just can I pay you by the hour just to review what I have and make sure that I've got generally my basis covered. 
Um, but the collaborative thing is totally different, right? Uh, there's a there's a group of lawyers, especially here in Georgia, that are really focused on helping people do things collaboratively um, and avoiding really costly litigation. And that's really where people just work together to try to come up with a resolution and stay out of a courtroom as much as possible. Uh, so what about the situation where one party uh, has decided to retain a lawyer and now the other party hasn't yet to? I, I guess first let's take the hypothetical that they're, they don't have a lot of assets and one party has gone into their joint account retained a lawyer and now the other side wants to but um there's not a ton of money left uh, how often does that come up how does that get handled yeah that that does come up a lot of the times people initially will put their their initial retainer for an attorney on a credit card and a lot of the times it's because they don't want the other party knowing that they've played a retainer out of a joint account right because the second you pay a four thousand five thousand dollar retainer most people are going to notice that that's coming out of the account but in the situation where someone takes money out of an account to pay a, an attorney, then the other party can you know, get money from family or friends. They can put it on a credit card. Or sometimes attorneys will take cases if the other party makes more money and they have access to the funds. Sometimes the attorney will take the case and ask the court to actually award temporary fees from the other party. So let's say you've got a husband and a wife and the husband makes $150,000 a year and he controls the, the money and the wife doesn't work and she doesn't have any access to the money, then an attorney may take that case and say, judge, we need you to order us temporary fees because my client doesn't have access to the marital funds to be able to pay her own fees and she should be able to do that. So pretty much if she wants to get an attorney, there's going to be a way to make that happen. Usually. I mean, that in an ideal world, yes. Sometimes the courts get backlogged and you can't get a temporary hearing, um, but there are options. And if they are truly a low-income family who wouldn't you know, be able to afford, there is also legal aid in family law cases where a particular person could go and apply for legal aid and get a, a free or a low-cost attorney. Okay. So let's take the more traditional one where both sides are represented by an attorney. Uh, what sort of things at your initial consultation should the client be prepared to discuss, be prepared to have as far as documentation? Um, and then what sort of things come up that they kind of don't really think about? The initial consultation is pretty important. I think a lot of it is on a personality match, right? You want to trust your attorney much like you trust your doctor. And I typically tell people, don't just meet with one attorney, like find somebody that you actually like and that you trust because they're going to be helping you through a pretty crappy time in your life that you want to get through and, and with as little scars as possible. So you want to be able to trust that person. They also need to be upfront with the attorney and make good use of their time. Most consultations are about an hour. So you should think about that before you go into a consultation. And what does this person really need to know to be able to answer my questions? And it's always good to write down questions. When I have consults come in and they have questions written down for me that are important to them, right? Is it, what is my, what are my finances going to possibly look like after this divorce? Or 
Um, are we going to have to live together through the divorce or whatever is really pressing on them to get answered during that consultation, if at all possible. Sometimes we can't answer those questions because we're not going to have all the information. We're only going to have the information that they provide us. But to come in prepared with questions of what do you need to know and what are the next steps? So you touched on living arrangements. Uh, How quickly does that usually get uh, figured out as far as I would think most of the time they want to get in the separate households. How practical is that to get done quickly? Is that something that's usually a big impediment at the beginning of a case? So living arrangements are interesting. Um, sometimes people decide to litigate living in the same home, and they might go through a two-year divorce, three-year divorce, and they're still living under the same roof. Sometimes somebody comes in and they've already separated and they're already in two different locations. And then we have the rare occasion where someone with children will do something called nesting, which I think is not a great idea, but people do it where the children stay in a home and the parents go in and out of the home while they're in the midst of the divorce um, until the divorce is resolved. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it works for people. But in general, if somebody needs temporary use of the home and the other party's refusing to move out, so let's say it's a toxic environment and the parents are fighting in front of the kids and there's just, it's really not a good place to be, we can always ask for a temporary hearing and ask the court for exclusive use of the house and ask the court for one party to move out. Typically, that's about 60 days out. Okay. So... Uh, I'm probably going to go back to this topic several times in this uh, podcast, the back to fees. Sure. Uh, You know, we've talked about all these hypothetical things that could happen and various things that may happen in this case versus that case. How is it, at least at the initial consultation stage, where you can go about as a client trying to figure out what is this thing going to cost me because it could go on for years or or months. It's just so unpredictable. Yeah, that's a great question. In general, divorces or custody cases cost as much as people make them, right? And you only have control over yourself, but the other party can drive up costs very, very highly on their case. So everything that we do is billable by, it's a retainer. So we bill by the hour. Most family law attorneys do that. And the longer a case goes, the more expensive it is. And what we always tell our client is, look, we're always going to give you a realistic expectation of what's likely going to happen in a courtroom. If you take the route of, I don't like that expectation and I'm going to fight for something else, your case is going to be much more expensive. And you have the right to do that, but you have to know that there's a financial cost to that. So assuming that there's not a family member or friend chipping in on the fees and really we're just got two sides utilizing the same pool of assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that work in the hypothetical where uh, one side is trying to or is being more aggressive and really causing the litigation to go on? Uh, how, how does that work as far as the allocation of fees as it goes. Sure. So the court has, the court's job is to divide the marital estate equitably, which a lot of people think is 50-50, but really equitably means fair. So if the court decides at the end of a hearing that let's say the wife was completely, let's say the wife was completely unreasonable and she didn't want the husband to have any parenting time because she was just angry that he 
had an affair or something like that. And so she tripled the amount of attorney's fees he did because of her behavior and managing her, all of that. Then the court would have the ability to reapportion their marital estate and say, okay, throughout this case, you liquidated $20,000 and he did 10 because the attorney's fees. So I'm going to put an extra 10 in his column. So the court has some ability there to move over some fees to account for that behavior. All right, so let's talk about the actual process of the divorce. Can you just kind of give an outline of like soup to nuts from the filing of the complaint to when the case may end, how long it may take, and the kind of things that transpire during that process? Sure. In Georgia, there's a few different types of divorce. So sometimes people come in and they say, we have an uncontested divorce. And I'm like, okay, well, have you guys talked about your assets? No, but I think we're going to agree. Have you talked about your debts? Nope, but I think we're going to agree. I'm like, okay, that's not an uncontested divorce, okay? An uncontested divorce is when somebody, they, you sit down essentially with your spouse and y'all agree on the terms of your divorce. You go to an attorney, that attorney drafts up the paperwork. Sometimes it'll go to the other person's attorney. Sometimes it'll go to the other party individually and the parties review it. If you have a true uncontested divorce, meaning the parties are kind of coming in, they're on the same terms, they're on the same page about what they want to do, once that gets submitted to the court, the judge has to wait 31 days before the judge can sign off on your final judgment and decree. Typically, it's about 45 days from filing where your case would actually be finalized. So the more traditional route is a contested case where you file a divorce, which is the petition, that starts the case. Then the other party gets served the petition, and once they're served, they have 30 days to file a response. Then there's a discovery period, a mandatory discovery period in Georgia that's six months. So for a period of six months, the parties can exchange documents, ask for financials, ask questions, do depositions, whatever they want to do. During that six-month period, there's usually a mediation scheduled in the hopes that, look, let's cut this case off. We've gotten some documents. We both kind of know where everybody's at. Let's try to get this settled. If the case does not settle at mediation, then after that six-month period has passed, then the court can set the case down for a final hearing. Now, that might be nine months from the date the case was filed. It might be a year. It kind of depends on what's going on in the case, and it also depends on the court's calendar and how much time you need. If you need a three- or four-day trial, then that's going to be a lot longer than it is if you need a half-day trial. So it depends on the county you're in. It depends on the judge you're in front of and really how much time you need in court. But on average, I would say most divorces take from filing, if it's not a uncontested case, if it's a traditional contested case, I would say most divorces take between six and 18 months. And the ones that are closer to six, is that really is the number one factor in getting those resolved that quickly, just the willingness of both parties, or is there some other magic to it? Absolutely. I mean, it takes both parties being reasonable to get a case settled. And if you go to mediation and you get everything resolved, then usually people are more happy, much more happy with the results because they've had a say in the outcome. When you go to court, you're putting your total faith in a stranger that has a small amount of time and a ton of cases to decide what's best for your future. When you're in mediation, you usually have six, seven, eight hours where you're going back and forth and nailing out the terms that really works best for, for your family and for your kids. So uh, those cases are generally shorter, but, but more importantly, people are usually happier once they get their case resolved that way. Now, I want to 
talk about mediation a little bit later, but um, what happens if, if one party is really eager to settle, the other party not so much? Are, is there really any way to get those things resolved uh, quickly, or are those just always going to kind of drag on? It's, it really depends on what the issue is, right? So I, I heard a video that I thought was completely on point the other day, and it said, in general, like for a man, losing it all typically comes down to money, right? Like how much money am I going to have to pay? For a woman, losing it all is what she thinks is right for custody, not getting that custody arrangement. So it really depends on, and that's a generalization, obviously, but it really depends on what and how firm each person is in their belief, but also how much they want to pay to be able to get that. So you kind of led me to my next question, custody or finances, which tend to be the um, bigger impediment to getting resolved on average? I would say in general custody. Finances, you do have those rare cases where, you know, you're really dealing with a difficult financial issue. If it's a business, sometimes those cases get pretty difficult because usually the business owner wants to say the business is worth nothing and the non-business owner wants the business to be worth five million, right? Because that's just how it goes. But for custody, it's such an emotional thing and people carry so much of the history with custody that it's really hard when you have people on different planets when they th of what they think is best for their kids. So with custody, um, let's talk about a couple elements of that. The first being the guardian ad litem. What can you just explain sort of what the guardian ad litem is and what their role is and how it factors into the ultimate determination on custody? Sure. A guardian ad litem is, typically in Georgia, a guardian ad litem is an attorney. In other states, a guardian ad litem isn't necessarily attorney, but here in Georgia it is. But the guardian ad litem is an advocate that is appointed on behalf of the children. And what their job is, is to look out for the best interests of the children. And how I explain it to people is, it's eyes and ears of the judge. So what the guardian ad litem does is they investigate a case. They go and talk to witnesses. They will, if the children are of appropriate age, they will go and talk to the children. They will talk to childcare providers, teachers, doctors. Uh, they'll meet with both parents. They'll do home visits with both parents. And then what they do is they report back to the judge on, hey, after I've looked at all of these things and after I've looked at you know, talk to all these people, this is what I really think is in the best interest of these kids, and this is why. A guardian's recommendation to a judge is huge because they're the person that has been out, you know, in the field. They're non-biased. They're not there for the husband. They're not there for the wife. They're there for the children and to tell the court what is in the best interest of the children. Another thing that's huge having a guardian ad litem is whatever evidence that the guardian ad litem has is admissible in court that may otherwise not be admissible. For example, that would be statements made by a children or th statements made by a third party who aren't there. All that evidence gets in through a guardian ad litem. So it allows the court to consider many, many more things in a much shorter time period than hauling all of those witnesses into court. And as far as a temporary order on custody, is that the kind of thing that the guardian is going to weigh in on not not just the permanent order but the temporary sure a guardian ad litem would make and in some cases they make a temporary recommendation in some cases 
after the judges had a temporary hearing, the judge might say, y'all need a guardian in this case, and I'm going to appoint a guardian so that I have a recommendation on a final basis. So sometimes they come in at the very beginning of a case, sometimes they'll come in at the middle, but they can um, they can make a temporary recommendation, they can make a final recommendation, they can actually require that either parent submit to psychological testing or drug testing, so they really are the eyes and the ears of the court for the children. And how determinative is that temporary order towards the final order? In general, a temporary order weighs really heavy on what the outcome of a final order, even if you have a guardian or if you don't have a guardian. So if you go to court and the judge gives, let's say, dad primary physical custody at a temporary hearing and you don't have a final hearing for six months, then the judge is really going to consider what's happened over this last six months. And they're going to want to know, well, how are the kids doing? If the kids are doing well, it's very likely that that temporary is going to become the final outcome. And the judge gets to consider what happened at that temporary on a final basis. So a temporary hearing is really important in a divorce case. So as you, you're registered as a mediator in Georgia, is that correct? I am. Okay, so how, how long have you been mediating for? I've been mediating for three years. I typically mediate um, about eight to ten cases a month. So tell us then about mediation and uh, just mediation in general, and then also maybe something like, are they, is it more successful if you're mediating closer to the trial date, anything like that? So... What I always tell people is mediation is your opportunity to have some outcome in the end of your case, right? A judge, when they're in court, has a small amount of time and a ton of cases. So they do the best they can with, number one, the information they have, the evidence that they are allowed to review because they're subject to our evidentiary codes, and um, really the performance of the parties when you're in a court hearing. But at mediation, it's much more relaxed. It's an informal environment. Typically with family law, we stay in caucuses, which is just a fancy word for separate rooms. And the mediator goes back and forth and talks to the parties. And they really get to understand, okay, I understand why you want to do that, or I understand why you're concerned about that, or, or that you're concerned about that, but tell me why. And they get to get to the root of the problem in, in both rooms but also come up with more creative solutions. So traditionally, people, when they settle their case in mediation, are so much happier with the result because, yes, you have to give and take, but some of the things that were most important to you, you probably end up got, getting. And some of the things that were most important to the other party, you ended up getting. As far as timeline for mediation, typically mediation is most productive once you've exchanged some form of discovery because a major issue in divorces is usually parties want to fully understand their finances. So once you have all your assets, all your debts laid out, you understand what each spouse makes. Um, and if the parties have been separated, that even makes it easier because they've been living in some sort of normalcy of, of separation. They're not still in the same house. But I would say mediation is usually most productive after you've exchanged some of that discovery. So there are so many variables in a case, what county you're in, the venue, um, also uh, finances, um, uh, maybe you've got one party who doesn't quite understand the law as well as the other, or they're thinking the, they do understand the law, but they're thinking it's not fair. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the biggest misconceptions or impediments 
you see come up at a mediation? Well, mediating with an attorney that's not prepared is a major issue. So if you're getting there and you're asking, you know, as the mediator, I want to know, tell me the assets, tell me the debts. Because if the attorneys come and they don't have a, I, I call it a marital balance sheet, I create one on Excel so that both parties can see their entire marital estate on one page. So everyone's working off the same understanding of what they have. And so the biggest hurdle at mediation is, is not being prepared, but also the clients not really having a expectation of what they're willing to do. So if you come into mediation and you're like, I'm only going to agree to this and I'm not moving, well, then you're wasting everybody's time because that's not the point of mediation. When you're walking into mediation, you're going to get some things you want, you're going to get some things you don't, and it's going to be somewhere, you know, in the middle. Nobody walks out of mediation with every single thing that was on their checklist. So really being mentally prepared for that and knowing where, where do I have wiggle room, right? What is the most important thing to me? What is non-negotiable? Uh, sometimes legal custody is an example, right? So in Georgia, we've got legal custody and physical custody. And in legal custody, there's four areas. So a big one for people is usually education. Who has final say over the kids' education if you can't agree? Because that's the enrolling parent. That's who gets to decide, gets to decide what school kids go to. So if that's a non-negotiable thing for you, you know that the kids need to continue to go to school in your school district, whatever, then make that one of your non-negotiables. But then you might need to move on Maybe you only wanted to give them two weeks in the summer, but maybe you can give them four, right? So you've got to figure out what is your non-negotiable issues and what are, where are some places that you can make movement to try to get this case resolved. And for a layperson who just isn't really familiar with the law, this may be you know, their only kind of endeavor in the legal matter. Uh, what can they sort of do to know if it's a good settlement other than listen to their attorney and listen to the mediator. I mean, is there anything else they can really do? Well, you don't want to listen to your friends because that's the major issue that, that people mess up in family law cases, right? They say, uh, oh, well, my neighbor got this when they got through divorce. I'm like, okay, well, does your neighbor do what you do for a living? Does the husband do what your husband does for a living? Are your kids the same? No, they're not, right? So family law, every single case is so different. Uh, but really listening to your attorney, listening to the mediator, but more importantly, trusting your attorney and having a conversation before you're at mediation of what the expectation is and what a realistic outcome is. Because I think a lot of the times people are like, okay, well, we'll just discuss it at mediation. But then it's so much on them at one time that they can't really think of, okay, well, is this agreeable? Can I live with this for the next 10, 12, 15 years, depending on how you know, young your children are. So having that conversation before and being prepared is huge. So let's say you're unsuccessful, you don't settle mediation, we go towards a trial. Uh, what exactly is a family law trial like? How many days does it typically last? Uh, seems like it'd be pretty expensive. Uh, just talk us through that process. Yep. So every trial is different. Um, in Georgia, there's only a few states across the United States that allow jury trials in divorce. Georgia is one of them. Uh, Texas is one of them. There's, I think, three, maybe four. But that's very rare in a family law case. And a jury can only determine um, financial issues, assets. They can't determine custody. That's, that's solely with a judge. But a family law trial is 
very similar to any other type of trial. You know, the attorneys will get up there, they will make an opening statement. Usually evidence is submitted prior, so the attorneys already know what either party is going to want to introduce as evidence. And sometimes they'll have the opportunity to object to those things before. Sometimes you do it as it comes up. But typically it starts with the, the plaintiff. So whoever filed the case will put on their case first. And their attorney will decide what that looks like. It might be their client testifying first. They might call the other side up first for cross-examination. It depends on, on what the case is. But both parties will take the stand. The attorney will walk through every part of the case, usually in big topics, right? They might start with finances. They might start with, why are we here in the first place? What caused this marriage to break down? They'll go over what each party does for a living, their assets, their debts, and of course, custody, and what their client's asking for for custody and why and what are their concerns. They'll give the judge a proposed parenting plan to consider saying, you know, this is what we're asking for and this is why. And every witness that is there is also subject to cross-examination. So the other attorney gets to ask them questions as well. Once the plaintiff is done with their case, the defendant will put on their case, and then there will be closing arguments. The judge may or may not decide at the time of a final hearing that day. The judge may take it under advisement and issue their own ruling. Or the judge may say from the bench, this is what I'm going to do, and either plaintiff's attorney or defendant's attorney draft up an order for me that mirrors this. And do you, from your experience, does that sometimes get kind of emotional for the client, these trials, as far as going back through everything? And how much should they factor that into their decision, whether they need to go forward with the trial? Yeah, I mean, a trial is extremely emotional. Number one, it's public. So anybody can come in and watch if they want. Um, you also have to get up and testify to the worst about your spouse in a public forum and then be subject to cross-examination on that. And a lot of the times you have to say something that you don't want to be public and that ultimately you can't take back. You also have to bring in many times third parties into the case to be able to testify and say, say their piece. And so it's muddy, it is exhausting, and it's expensive. And most, you know, most family law full trials, if you're doing a full divorce trial, it's usually a multi-day trial. So you're looking at you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to put on this final trial that's gonna be a multi-day case. All right. So we've talked about resolving in a mediation, resolving in a trial. Uh, eventually it ends at one point, but is that really the end? How often do they wind up coming back to you with some sort of issue afterwards? And, you know, does that lead to modification? How, how does that come about? In family law cases, there there is frequently some sort of second case, right? It might be a contempt case, which is just the enforcement of whatever your initial divorce decree says. So let's say someone was required to sell a house and they didn't sell the house and they didn't pay out the other party what they were supposed to, then that would be resolved by a contempt action or they're not paying their child support or, you know, there's, there's a thousand scenarios there, but that would be contempt. 
then the other issue that we do see come up a good bit is a modification. And the reality is kids need change as they grow and as they mature. So if you do a divorce when your kids are two, what parenting time is appropriate for a two-year-old might look very different for a four, from a 14-year-old. And if the parties can't agree on what they're going to do, then you have to go back to court to get that modified. So we see parenting time modifications. We see child support modifications as parties' income changes over the years and contempts. But those are the major post-divorce types of cases that we see. And how much of that can just be worked out among the parties or what is, how do you determine whether it's worth pursuing? I mean, I don't, you know, let's say you got them a day late for Thanksgiving or something versus what you talked about, child support arrears of six months. You know, how how is it you make that determination when it's actually time to move forward with litigation? I think talking to an attorney who has your best interest in mind, we, judges don't want to see people over and over and over again in the courtroom, right? Um, And if you're coming and you're filing contempt after contempt over silly things like that, they were 10 minutes late, they were five minutes late, the judge is going to be very irritated by that. Now there's very valid contempts of you're not paying your child support and it's six months and we are dependent on this support, then of course you're going to need to file that contempt. But I think talking to an attorney and figuring out what makes sense and and why in our case. But the same is true for a modification. We actually just had a case where we represented the mom, a husband, uh, ex-husband, filed a modification of child support because he wanted to pay less child support. But he didn't do his due diligence before he filed. And what resulted in at, at the final hearing is he's getting less parenting time and he's paying more child support. And he was the one that filed the case because he just went to a attorney and said, I want to lower my child support. And either he didn't provide all the information that he really needed to to his attorney or the worksheets weren't ran before. But what happened is both parties had income had slightly gone up from the divorce, which resulted in his child support also going up. So making sure you're doing your due diligence before you file a case is really important. So, so there is some risk in filing a modification if it's not warranted. Absolutely. And not only are you at risk of losing whatever you're asking for, right, your modification of child support, you're also at risk in paying attorney's fees because we've got different statutes that allow for the award of attorney's fees, and one is for the prevailing party in a modification case. So the judge can actually make you pay attorney's fees as well if you file a modification and you aren't the prevailing party. Let's uh, transition a little bit to, to talking to younger attorneys. What, what sort of advice would you give a younger attorney who's uh, maybe fresh out of law school trying to get into family law? What, what is the best way to break into that field? I would probably say if you have the opportunity while you're in law school, work at a law firm and really try to be a sponge, soak up as much information as you can in any area that you're interested in. If it's family law, if it's personal injury, whatever, go see what that really looks like because many times you see something, you have an expectation of what it's going to be and then you do it and it's so different. So being able to shadow um, someone while you're in law school. But then after law school is similar advice, but like find a mentor. We have, there's so many seasoned attorneys in our field that are are happy to mentor people and to 
ask questions and to provide your advice. So if you go work at a law firm where that's kind of built in, that's obviously great because you've got that built-in mentor. But even if you're working at a smaller firm and you don't have that, join the bar association and find a mentor, somebody that's willing to help you and guide you as you're learning the process. And when you started doing family law, was there anything about just the practice field that surprised you? Or what was the number one thing that caught you by surprise? I worked in a family law law firm while I was in, it was a family law and criminal law firm in law school. So I feel like coming out of law school, I had a pretty good expectation of, of what to expect. But I think when I started primarily practicing, what really surprised me is how ugly some attorneys can be to each other. Um, some attorneys take the position of everything my client says is true. And I've always taken the expectation the, the position of everything my client says is through their lens, right? And their lens very frequently looks drastically different from the other party's lens and they're living their own truth. And so sometimes in family law, attorneys get very personally invested which unfortunately makes family law cases much more difficult when they're aligned with their clients sometimes instead of trying to really see, like, how can we resolve this together? So that raises my next question, which is, how do you advise an attorney? You've got the, quote, zealous representation of the client versus they may be going down, a, trying to lead you down a path that is the wrong path mm -hmm. so you're trying to sometimes maybe save them from themselves then you also have your reputation with uh, the other attorneys uh the court how exactly can an attorney you know know how to balance all those factors yeah i think that's hard especially for a young attorney because I would remind them that your job is to tell somebody what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. And you don't want to be the attorney who is telling your client what they want to hear and then going in front of a judge and the exact opposite happening. That's not going to result in a happy client. That's not going to result in future referrals. What your job is to do is to set realistic expectations and to represent your client the best you can with the information that you're provided. So to be able to really focus on that and help guiding your client the right way. There's only so much that you can do. Some people are not going to take your advice. Some people, you will tell them that you're going to lose that position and they don't care. They want to pay you the money. They want to go to court. Um, and, and frequently what you said what happened happens. But setting a realistic expectation so that they're aware of that before they go in is really important. And with younger attorneys, like, where do you see um, sort of some issues they may struggle with? Is it how to handle themselves or negotiate or to mediation? Is it uh, not quite realizing that what's going to happen in this county is not going to happen in this other county. What, what are some of the things you see? County-specific things are important. So being familiar with your county and being familiar with your judges. But I think sometimes really young attorneys are scared to ask questions. And I've been practicing for almost 13 years, and I learn stuff 
all the time. And it doesn't mean you're a bad attorney, but it means that you haven't came across that very specific thing before. Or, you know, it might be a, for example, when I was a young attorney, I didn't know Jack about different types of stocks and restricted stocks that a company gets and how that ties into a marital asset. You don't learn that in law school. You learn that through practice and you learn that through having a financial expert. So knowing when to ask a question and get help when you are not prepared for the issue at hand. And nine times out of 10, people really respect that. When you say, I don't really know, but I'm going to go find out and I'm going to look into it. So not being scared to ask questions and to ask for help. And how important is case selection, whether it's you and the client, just the rapport is just not there or they may have some unrealistic expectations for the case. How important is that and how quickly do you need to weed that out? That's going to really depend on the firm that you're at, probably, that allows you to, because a lot of the times as a young attorney, you're just handed cases. Um, And sometimes it's not going to be a good relationship fit. And sometimes it might just be a really difficult client. But I think, again, that comes back to, to asking for help and asking for advice. But as an attorney, you can also always turn away cases. So if you're, you know, self-employed and you're younger and somebody comes in and they're just like, you're not getting the right jive, you've got no responsibility to take that case. And I've turned away many cases throughout my career and I've never regretted saying, I'm sorry, but we're not going to take this case, but I will get you to somebody who would be a great fit for you and then referring them somewhere else. Well, um, we've uh, come to the conclusion. I want to thank our guest, Jenny Brown of Brown, Dutton, and Kreider for joining us for this podcast, and thank you for listening. You can find Jenny at gafamilylawyers.com. That's gafamilylawyers.com. You can visit me online at brickslaw.com. That's B-R-I-C-K-S-L-A-W.com. You can also rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. All of our contact information can be found in the link below. For more details, you can personally email me at peter, P-E-T-E-R, at brickslaw.com.